Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Hi, Sarah and Mac. It's good to see you today. You too. We um we have a special podcast day because we have our first ever guest on mm-hmm. our program. So welcome to Hope and Heresy, Mac. Um, Mac Brandon is a pastor in the town where I work as well. At he's at AME Zion in Ridgewood, and a professor at Ramapo, right? And also an amazing musician and composer. Um, so we are especially lucky to have Mac with us this morning, or afternoon, I guess it is now. Good afternoon, Mac. Good afternoon. So wonderful to see you all. <clears throat> so our, our, oh, go ahead, Peggy. <laughs> Mac, maybe you could just tell us something about your work. You and I met once, but I don't actually know so much about what you do. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I, uh, after I graduated from school in Boston, I immediately went on the road um, and uh, I was the, the uh, musical director for Benny King, uh, who did the song Stand By Me and you know, a bunch of songs. And then I uh, became the, uh, the um, musical director for The Drifters, which is why I was so interested in that picture uh, that I saw on Amy's wall and, and worked with the Four Tops and the Supremes and you know several other groups uh, and was an arranger for BBC Television Orchestra in London. Uh, and a producer had a record company and what have you. So I was a musician and and very active uh, in the music business. One of the things that was true was that um, there was always a spiritual resonance in everything that I did. And people said, oh, you know, where did that come from? And then of course, I would wax poetic about the spiritual uh, evidence of the music. Uh, And so there was always this this lingering, there was always this lingering voice which said, you know, uh, you know, there, you, you, you want to take this even further. And so I was doing the music and at a certain point, uh, I, I'll never forget, I got a call from a pastor and the pastor said, will you uh, come back and, um, you know, and, and play for our church? Well, there's a whole story there because I was raised in a church and I left the church. I took a long siesta. Uh, and so I was having so much fun doing the music that I was doing that I didn't want to want to go back. But I went back to the church to visit, and I fell in love with the old ladies in the choir. There were about ten very elderly women who were the sweetest people in the world, and I fell in love with them. So I said, Ah, okay, I'll do two Sundays. And so I would still get on the plane and come back to you know give the two folks. And then the other choir got jealous in the church and they said, no, we want, so anyways, I ended up there four Sundays a, a month. And of course, what was happening was as opposed to this lingering voice, I was really speaking to the spiritual essence. And I was, you know, I, I, w- I was coming alive uh, uh, spiritually. And one thing led to another, uh, led to another. And next thing uh, I felt the call 
to uh, to to the pastorate. I'm now a, uh, only pastoring uh, for this is the tenth year uh, at Ridgewood and have been a um, uh, ordained only uh, 14 years ago. So it's it's still relatively new um, for 14 years. I know some people say 14 sounds long to me, um, but it has been a wonderful, wonderful journey, and it's been seamless because the musical ministry and the didactic ministry have been one. I have been able to minister and still do. Now, in between that, uh, this is my 27th year at Roundville College in New Jersey, where I'm a professor of music. And I get to perhaps do my most effective ministry at the college because there are so many wayward college kids who you know, want to figure out what it is that I need to do with my life. And so in, in as delicate way I, as I can, uh, musically and in counseling, I get an opportunity to interface with them and to learn from them. I just finished teaching a class and uh, they teach me technology every class. You know, there's something new that I learn about, something on the computer that I feel fairly stupid, you know, uh, but I am humbled uh, by their their knowledge. And then I get to pass along some of my uh, wisdom to them. So it's, it's, um, it is a, a, a frazzled life, but it is a very, very fruitful one. And I'm grateful every day uh, that I get up, that I get to do the things that I love um, each and every day. So that's who I am. Thanks, Meg. Um, so we we have you on today. Our, our sort of topic that we had decided on was um, the sort of the spiritual work of sort of anti-racism, right? Like, why is that holy work? But as you we were talking, I sort of, it occurred to me, you know, we're, we're coming up on what, 10 months of this pandemic that has exposed even more about the injustice and racism like built into the structures of this country, right? And you, Mac, you and I have talked a lot in other contexts about, you know, this, the history of racism here in this country. And I'm thinking about like 10 months into that on the eve of like the holidays, right? Hanukkah started yesterday. Like we are, we're sort of in that weird moment when like everyone gets all fuzzy and warm with each other but at the same time we're in this pandemic and like so I'm I guess I'm just thinking about the pervasiveness of racism in all of our structures and this time of year where people maybe don't really want to be thinking about it but too bad you have to and then I'm wondering about how pervasive like you work on a lot of different fronts as you just shared with us, right? Like pastoring your own music, your teaching. So is, do you find that the anti-racist work is basically just across the board in all of those areas? Like, did it come to you through the music? Did it just come to you through the spiritual stuff? Like, how did you get into this aspect of the work and how does it manifest in your different? Okay, that's a lot. Um, uh, so. <laughs> So because each of them have their own trajectory. Um, well, I was, I, mean, I, I was always immersed in the work because my father was um, the president of the NAACP in the uh, um, uh, Troy, Albany, Schenectady area. And um, so he was a person who led desegregation marches in, this, in the town in the 60s. You know, he took buses to the March on Washington. Roy Wilkins came to my house. Jackie Robinson came to my house and people like that, and, you know, doing the work. So I was kind of a child of the work, um, though I didn't really recognize it. My father was a pastor and, and, and 
that's what pastors did. They were activists. Um, so I grew up in that setting, not thinking terribly much about it. Um, living as, as many people do in two worlds. I lived uh, a world, um, you know, in a public school that was entirely white and me. And then the world of the church, which was a black and integrated world. And so kind of navigating between the two allowed me to discern real injustice, right? Because on one, you there's a comfort because you're fully human. And in the other, there are levels, insidious levels of demonization that you, you discern from a young age. Um, music was great because music seemed to, you know, calm the savage soul. Music seemed to be the thing which everyone could come together. Um, but make no mistake, um, the, the truth of our society was still pervasive. We could still, it was still there. And I still felt those pains. Um, you know, my, my first thought was, and many musicians do this, many musicians are very sensitive to society and to society's ills, but they feel that they are, you know, royal harpists. They feel that they are, uh, they are they who can soothe, you know, the savage beast inclination. They can be healers through their music. And that was what I wanted to be. I, I certainly wanted to be a healer. Um, but I also have a big mouth. So I had to speak on, as you can tell, I had to speak on uh, some of the things that were going on because some of them were just, you know, they were just terrible injustices. And so for instance, my first week at Berkeley College of Music in Boston was the week of the secret segregation in, in, in um, uh, not Roxbury, in um, South, South Boston, right? So I don't know if you remember the South Boston bus desegregation. That was a major, Pixie Palladino, and that was a major moment. And a lot of people didn't go to Boston because of the desegregation. It was as bad as any. It was as bad as Chicago. I mean, it was like a little rock thing. It was, it was terrible. <clears throat> so one could not escape from the injustices. Um, there also comes a time as you mature that you say enough is really enough. And you, 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 you speak on things and you consistently speak on things, which led you know, to the activist posturing. You know, I, was, I was speaking on justice, justice in terms of the Bible, but it was also justice in a society because they were congruent. Right, and not only was the justice of the Bible in society, but justice of other ancient texts and the Bible, and so it was all coming together, uh, coming together for me. Um, when this happened, George Floyd, I had been positioned and been doing this work and talking about it, um, but George Floyd was something unique because George Floyd was the first time that I didn't feel that I was a solo voice. You know, there are these, we are like outposts. We, you know, people who are striving for justice many times feel like islands. And you have a flag out and you wave your flag and maybe you'll see another island in the distance. And then you'll wave your flag really high and hope that they wave there and say, yeah, keep on, you know, flying high uh, your flag. Um, but you feel like you're an island because you're surrounded by a water waters of complacency uh, and, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, uh, waters of apathy. Uh, but when George Floyd came, it was a new moment. 
uh, it was a moment that people came alive in a way that I had not seen before. I look at it now, 10 months later, as a rare opportunity in the same way that I look at the pandemic as a rare opportunity. The story will be told much later what the pandemic really meant to us. But there were so many things that changed in the way that we do business with the pandemic. And in the middle of that, there were so many things that have changed in the way that we do our justice business with George Floyd, I believe. One of the things that happened with George Floyd was this. We're talking about it. There is a level of communication and dialogue that's going on now that simply was not happening in the past. Um, there are community groups who are talking. I have a Wednesday night Zoom that I just started, you know, just doing it one week, then I did it another week. We're now in the 10th month of doing this Wednesday night Zoom. And it's a wonderful thing. It keeps getting better and better and better. And, and one of the questions I asked on Wednesday was a matter of self-care. What do you do for self-care? Um, and uh, it, was, it was kind of poignant because three people say, well, we come on a Wednesday night Zoom, you know, like we do other things. Um, because it is, it is the recognition of the fact that we, we, in fact, need each other. We truly do need each other in community, right? And we need to talk over our barriers. George Floyd sort of made that possible because it was, you know, it was the, the absolute violence of it in the same way of, of Pettus Bridge. It was the absolute violence of it, which, which, which said something has to be done. So people are talking that didn't, uh, that didn't uh, speak before. So um, this has been really, really good. The pandemic has been good in a certain kind of way for churches. Um, it, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's been good for churches because it's really unsettled them. It's changed the finances. It's changed the way we do business. And it's caused us to look in our hearts because we had no place else to go. We didn't have places to go to. We didn't have doors to unlock because we couldn't go in them. And the question, the question became, what, what, Moses, is in your hand? What's in your hand, right? You, you, you know, you're saying that you are this thing. You are this spiritual person. You're saying that we love each other and all the cliches that we might say on a Sunday morning, but you now no longer have the physical plant, but you have your heart. And so what's in your hand? And I think that it is a rare opportunity to, uh, to, to examine ourselves. And I think that's what we've been doing. And I think we'll, we won't be the same. I hope we won't be. Um, to be honest, we, I, I haven't gone back in the sanctuary. And I'm not planning to go back until the spring, okay? Um, for several reasons, but one of which is I, I enjoy the fact that we don't have, we're 136 years old. And, you know, you can get into some 136-year-old habits. You know, tradition feels really good, right? And you can start mistaking traditions and rituals for God. You can start mistaking, you know, things which are totems for that which is really important. Um, and so this has been a unique opportunity uh, for us to, to celebrate with each other 
and to understand and a unique, unique opportunity to learn. And I think that's really big. It's a unique opportunity for us to learn from each other. Now, one of you know, we're learning some things that are good and some things that are bad. I mean, we're we're still in the middle of a coup d'état attempt. <laughs> All right, that was political, but we are still in the middle of that, right? Um, and we're still in the middle of many people following that. Um, so you know, it's fairly biblical. <laughs> in my view of what's going on. So it's an opportunity for us to learn as we listen, as we listen to people, as we listen to the responses of people. And it's a unique opportunity for us to ask the question of ourselves, to look at ourselves, at, at ourselves and say, okay, how do I talk to someone who, is, who, who does not agree with me? How do I speak to someone across racial lines who is coming from a whole different canon of, of of understanding they've they've been learning things you know if you can if you can believe and i just finished having this discussion in my class you know i my question was if the election was a fraud um what what can we do better next time of course it's a leading question but it was quite interesting because uh and saddening because several of those college students were very cynical that they've actually bought in to the you know fake media and to the you know to the cynicism of fraud and all that, and I I said I'm I'm saddened by your cynicism, uh, and I and I challenge them to be scholars, to be you know to be scholars that when someone says anything don't take it for face value, you know research and 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 do the work. Um, but in this time of of cynicism, there is still yet an opportunity for us to see how we can be beacons of hope. How can we can be, <clears throat> as we sit on those islands, how we can be lighthouses okay, so, of hope. So I, I wanna ask you something, Mac, because you, you came back to that islands and, and the, you know, sort of this idea that like for a long time, people doing justice work were sort of outposts and waving to each other across distance. Um, and I love, you know, we, we, again, I think you and I have talked about this, the idea that the pandemic sort of forced a kind of inward looking that was different and George Floyd and, the, and, and politics and Trump and all of this is kind of like, maybe it's like conspired to this sort of perfect moment of waking a few people up who were, who were sleeping. But what I'm, I'm curious about your take on, like given that to you, to me, to Peggy, like it feels like a no brainer, right? That scripture, religion, the spiritual life would lead to justice, right? Like we're all on the same page about that. So I'm wondering what you think about like why, given that that seems so apparent to us, why <laughs> is not apparent to so many for so long, right? Like why have there been seas of apathy between the outposts for as long as there have, right? Like that, I, I wanna know what you think about that. Well, I have certainly uh, accrued a few gray hairs of, uh, dealing with that issue uh, in, in recent months, especially with my brothers, uh, uh, my brothers in Christ who are, who are labeled evangelicals. Um, it, it, it is so uh, searing um, that while we're waving that same banner that we could be so opposite in terms of uh, sensibilities that seem to be so apparent and they are in, they are instructive for us all that we can be all of us have the opportunity all of us have the ability to be myopic 
in, in some very important ways. And I think it's humbling because before I throw spears at them, uh, I have to look at myself and say, what are the ways that I'm being myopic? And I, and I certainly discover, you know, that there are, there are some, some things, but, um, but, but turning my light back on, uh, on folks that seem to not get the justice piece, it's really saddening um, and problematic because <clears throat> what I try to do is try to rationalize and say, okay, maybe they don't see it. Um, and then sometimes I say, no, they can see it, <laughs> but they are deciding. And I'm just in trying, to, trying to get my head into a space that I understand folks, because there are some things that we should at this point just be saying, because here's the thing, everybody teaches their children about the same thing, really. They, everyone wants their children to be safe, wants their children to be happy, wants their children to feel esteem. Now that esteem thing gets tricky because sometimes esteem can turn into, you know, you're better than. Um, but, but, but yet, as parents, we want to be, uh, we want to give, we want to make our children good citizens as a whole. And yet what we practice, the things that we say sometimes at the table, the things that we say to each other in private and community, <clears throat> excuse me, are so antithetical to justice. And I have to say, I have to do self-care. I have to, I, I have to um, surround myself with, from time to time, uh, you know, people of goodwill, because it can really mess with you. Um, this continued onslaught of 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 injustice and and what and what i'm you know i i say it kind of in passing but you know there's a whole swath of the country who was buying into a message that i'm saying really you know all the work that we do and all the work that has been done and it's that easy <laughs> you know <clears throat> i'm so sorry it's that easy. Last year, I went to Poland and I went to Auschwitz and it was a um, poignant visit for me because of course I had heard about it, but to go to the camp. And I came back to America and three days after I came back to America, I went down to DC to the Holocaust Museum um, because I was still wrestling with a lot of the, you know, wrestling with the injustice. I think the thing that was most problematic to me was, you know, people say never again, never again. I think the part that was most problematic to me was again, here we are again in certain ways. Here we are again, just accepting, um, accepting, if you will, evil and accepting and not accepting each other. Right, and and this is this is the, the the great land of opportunity for that. There's not too many places where you have a collage of people, different peoples coming together. That you have the opportunity to see difference and interface with people of difference, right? And to not take advantage of that opportunity to listen is criminal. And so many are not taking advantage of that opportunity. 
So on one hand, the pandemic has been an opportunity for us to talk, and I think communities have been talking, and I think there's hope. But on the other hand, what we have seen is we've seen the ability of, of humans to deprive themselves of that opportunity. I think that's what's happening. And so for me, in terms of my work, I have to really exercise self-care because it, it saddens me. It really, it, 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 it's, it's a very frustrating and saddening thing because so I just, please. I'm just wondering then what is it that you do for self-care? I know that, that this work, for me, this work can be completely exhausting or totally exhilarating. I can feel more connected doing really difficult justice work sometimes and sometimes I really feel depleted like they, I just can't I don't know how to get myself up off the ground what is it that you do that really keeps your spirit alive in this work okay I, you know I hang with hope uh first of all my prayer life has gotten better than it ever has been a prayer life is real good really really you know just growing uh because I want to be rooted uh so my prayer life and my faith life has grown um, I consciously find people like, you know, I found Sarah and she's one of those folks who is like, you know, a hopeful, you know, a voice, you know, uh, you know, and all of us have our own reservations personally, but, you know, we're hopeful voices to each other. And I choose hope and I choose joy, right? Um, and I think that's something that you do. You choose it so then you can go back to the battle, right? Fortify um because you never know sometimes in the middle of a battle who's winning but if you stay on the other side you know you might think that they're winning the battle right and you might feel defeated so you try to hang with your buddy you know you hang you hang with the buddy of hope and and joy and of faith and and you also you know you think about the practices that you have um you've been a part of the faith practices and the faith practices if you were, if if they were all to be consigned to a word for me, I think it's a reasonable word is hope, you know. Um, and so I I really really lean on that, and I lean on people, and in my preaching and in my speaking to people, I want to be a, a beacon of that. And as it comes alive in people, it bounces back at you, and you say, you know what, this is the party that I want to dance with. And so that when you go with other folks and you, you know, and they are talking real dark stuff and negative things, um, then you can hopefully, you know, that LED can go on and maybe change one soul, one soul at a time. You know, so that's, that's all I can do. Yeah. You're reminding me of that fabulous line from uh, Emma Goldman, who said, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so that we, we really do need, we not only we need hope both because it's how we move forward, but also personally in order to keep ourselves moving, that this has to be work filled with joy. If it is not sourced by joy, then it's not worth doing. And the fact that, especially for me, anti-racism work is about bringing integrity, bringing wholeness, dismantling the system that is completely out of balance and bringing balance into it. So we all need to be balanced. We all need to embody that and then to bring the, the whole society along 
into that. It is joyful work. It is exhausting and depleting, but it can also be joyful work. And I'm it, it is great to have you here with us. This has been fun for us. I mean, we've never done this before. We've never had somebody else on. So you were really quite fabulous. I love listening to your stories. I could listen to you for a long, long time. One day I actually want to listen to you talking about music and that as, as real soul work. Because you start talking about that, and I'm like, forget the anti-racism now. <laughs> I want to talk about that. So maybe we'll do that another time. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Back, back on and we'll do a music episode. Yeah, yeah. Great. It's been great talking to you guys. I know that our time is up, but thank you both so much for this conversation. And it was people a pleasure. Should join Max Wednesday night Zoom calls. Absolutely. Come <laughs> come on through. Yeah. Yeah, we we we, we dealt with the uh, spectrum of autism last week. I think this week we're going to have a, a decorated naval submarine commander. And uh -huh. I just want to talk about he's African American and he's come up through the ranks and it's kind of be interested in what that uh, journey has been through the military for all this for this career so uh yeah you're all welcome we to can, come on anytime maybe we can link the um the zoom room id in our show notes so everyone can pop on and check it out absolutely awesome. i listen i appreciate you all and i appreciate the work that you're all doing and uh if i can be of any assistance in any time just please call on me Thanks, well, remember, you have that recorded. <laughs> <laughs> you're, on, yeah, you're on record now. Um, Mac, I will see you soon. Thank you for okay. being with us. Okay. And Peggy, we'll, we'll talk next week, Peggy. All right. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone.